0: Hey guys, welcome back to the podcast. If you are a listener always, thank you for being here once again. And if you're new here, welcome to the podcast for the very first time. I'm glad that you decide to join and listen in. Um if you are in any kind of danger of violence, domestic violence or anything of the sort, please do not listen to this podcast. Hang up, dial 911. I'm going to give you a quick trigger warning. This podcast is going to be triggering for some people. Um, If you need any assistance with domestic violence, there is a National Domestic Violence Hotline number. It is 1-800-799-7233. Again, the number is 1-800-799-7233. Um, They have a lot of really good information, and I think that if you are a victim of domestic violence or you're just surviving and you need some help, it would be a great place to go. Um, Today's guest is Miss Kathy Kleiner. For all of you in the world that doesn't know this lady, she is a um, Ted Bundy survivor. She survived Ted Bundy, and she is a breast cancer survivor. She is also a lupus survivor. And today she is going to talk about her survival skills and what she's learned about herself and what she does to survive and continue thriving um, through everything. So, um, if Miss Kathy Kleiner gives me permission, we are going to start recording. Um, yes yes i do okay great um kathy i'm gonna let you have the floor and i know this is a little nerve-wracking because i'm like i don't edit the podcast (laughs) so (laughs) um so but yeah kathy's gonna talk about virtually surviving everything that she's went through um so if you want to start with whenever you want to start that's great i'll let you okay i will
1: thank you so much for inviting me to be um be able to talk to your audience today i'm very humbled that um i get to tell my story and i appreciate thank you very much
0: you're very welcome
1: i have um i've dealt with a lot um and i'll go through it with y'all my survivor skills have been one where i'm able to talk about things now today when i speak to you it's a healing process for me It's a way I have gone through things by facing them head on and talking about it. And it is one thing that has helped me um, to get through a lot of the, um, excuse me, a lot of the stuff. If I get too emotional, I'm sorry. It's just, I try to go into the situation as I'm telling you so you can truly feel um, how I felt at that time. I was born in Miami. At the age of five, my daddy died, and he was my world. Every evening, he'd come home, and we played Chinese checkers together. Um, it was very hot little house with no air conditioning. And one day, I'm looking out the window and saying, "Mama, you know where's Daddy?" And everything she's going through, she she said, "Daddy's not coming home anymore, honey. He's up in heaven, heaven with Grandma." And I'm like okay and it's something i didn't understand but it changed my world at that point point. and i just had to go on and know okay well my reality is different now because daddy's not in it a couple years later my mama remarried and i was adopted by my stepfather who was wonderful he was my daddy and i loved him to death and um, he was everything to me as well he passed on a couple years ago but he was uh, he was my rock, doing a lot of the things that I have been through. When I was thirteen, I was diagnosed with systemic lupus erythematosus. That is a form of lupus that not only attacks your um, your system and your blood uh, white count and red count, it also attacks your organs. In my situation, it attacked my kidney. I was, um, in the hospital for three months back when I was 13 in the seventies. Lupus wasn't a well-known disease. They, um, they hadn't seen it in children. So I was not diagnosed for about three months that I was in the hospital. And this was, this was a weird time for me. I didn't want this to be normal now. You know, I wanted to get out. I wanted to play, but I felt so sick. I was so sick. And my parents were told that I was so grave conditioned that I would probably not live through the next year. Again, they didn't know exactly what was wrong with me or how to treat me. My doctor told my mama, there was a Cuban doctor um, in Miami, who had an experimental form of chemo, and she wanted to see if it, you know, would be something that would help me. So my mama agreed, and I took the chemo, and I lost all my hair. I'm 13, I have no hair, and I'm sick all the time in bed, and I'm just, like, wishing to give up, but I'm not, I, I, I'm not, I wanted to get better, I wanted to feel good and go out so seventh grade I was homebound I could not leave the house for any reasons my teacher came in and gave me homebound uh, schoolwork and I I did that and mom and daddy worked and I was so lonely and just when I did feel good I remember going to the phone and dialing zero so I could talk to the operator just because I wanted someone to talk to and it's it's these little things I remember that kind of popped up and said, you know, I'm gonna be okay. Toward the end of the year of my seventh grade, I talked my mom and daddy into letting me go out for the first time and we went to church. I knew mama would go for that one. So went to church and went and had ice cream afterwards. And I was all dressed up in my, um, my scarf on my head and my pretty dress and I was just so happy and not two weeks later after that i came down with shingles so i um i'm pretty puny and i have shingles that were on my face and my neck and it was just it was a hard time for me toward the summer it was getting to be summer i really started feeling better i was able to go outside and just do things not not have the energy to play but at least i was outside and life was turning good again i said okay this is it i'm turning the corner but my hair was growing in slowly and i didn't know people or students now because i'd been home when um, everyone was going to middle school so i missed that experience and people didn't know me very well when i started high school i was a freshman i couldn't do physical activity first off it could cause the lupus to uh, reactivate and uh, to come back and also I just didn't have the energy I went and joined theater so for four years I was in theater and it was wonderful I found an outlet where I could just be me I could act and I could do and be anyone that I had to be or wanted to be except that sick little kid that was all in 6th grade I didn't have to be her anymore, and I knew life was out there, and things were going to be good because I had fun things to look forward to. I met a lot of good friends when I was in in um, high school, and actually, I, I met my husband I'm married to now. We never dated back then, but we we're good friends. I met some um, some good friends that I'll um, I'll talk about again soon in this in my life. But this is good. Life's great. I want this to be my new normal I want this to be what life's about and I had to work for it though it wasn't it didn't come knocking on my door I had to find the door to open it in order to get through this through all of this so I think that's one of my coping mechanisms is I'm not going to sit in a little box with no windows I'm going to open the door and see what's on the other side um And like i said i face everything and and i talk about it and it heals me i don't just crawl into myself and and hide it after high school i decided where to go for college a lot of my friends were going to different colleges in florida my uh, best friend betsy actually was going to go to fsu along with some other kids so florida state university I decided to go there, not for the academics or what I could achieve there. I chose part of state because it was as far away from Miami as I could get and still pay at state tuition. So that was my big decision on choosing which school to go to. I was so excited to go to college. Mama was real protective of me because of lupus and she just wanted to keep me in her little bubble and make sure nothing happened to me. I got to college and it was great. And mom and daddy moved me into a dormitory, which was a, a all women. It was an all woman dorm. And uh, my friends all lived in the co ed dorm. So I would go and visit them a lot. But it was a good experience to get out and have some freedom in my dormitory. But um, we used to, it was all women. And I remember when they had panty raids the first and second floor guys could go up but on the third floor no guys were ever allowed I remember when there were panty raids downstairs the girls and I would throw our panties over the stairwell so they fell all the way down and we'd giggle we had a panty raid (laughs) we were throwing the panties down so but it was fun that you know that was life then, and, you know, as, as a young, young person just opening their wings and looking out in the world, this was a good place for me. I enjoyed it. As a freshman, I decided to join uh, a sorority. When you do this in, in as a freshman in college, it's called rush. What rushes is when... Uh, one of the students or the women who are freshmen in the in the college decide that they want to join a sorority. There's a week where the uh, sorority teach, I'm sorry, there's a week where the sisters meet up with the women. We have like 15 minutes and we talk and they get to talk to us and then we move to the next house sorority and the um, they talked to us again so we can choose about five sorority houses we would want to go through through that week and kind of just get to know each of the sisters a little bit better and the sorority as a group. As I decided to decide uh, which I wanted to join was the best decision. Kai Omega was my sorority of choice. One of the girls I knew from high school in theater was Susie White. Susie was also a Cayo, so with her recommendations and her um her talking about me, Kayo thought we would be a good fit. So that's how i I chose to go to Kayo Omega as a sorority. When I was a freshman, uh, beside my uh, basic classes I took, I remember I took archaeology. I wanted to be a famous archaeologist and find you know the new uh, some, discover something new, and we'd be on a on a field class. And I remember I playing in the dirt and I broke one of my fingernails. And I thought, okay, this this is too physical of work for me. I can't do this. So I decided I needed something else to go into my freshman year up to the fall, fall of seventy six, up to the summer of seven. I decided to come home and I wanted to go back to Florida State in the fall of 77. My parents did not let, like me living in the dorm. They thought it was too um, too potentially uh, bad for me that people could come in or someone could hurt me. They made arrangements for me to live in the Kai Omega house. That was something there were about 80, 80, excuse me, there were approximately 80 80 girls that were Chi Omegas and about 40 got to live in the sorority house. It was a beautiful, big um, Victorian home and it was a great, great space. We had a house mama that lived in an apartment there. So we were well supervised and mama's daddy said, this is where I want her. So they made arrangements for me to move in there in the fall of 77. I moved in and I was so excited. Here I was a new Kayo sister and living in the house and taking classes and life was good again. And uh, I just wanted it to keep going forever. When I moved into my room in Cayo, it was kind of big. My roommate and I decided how we wanted to decorate it. so. Christmas came in the December of 77 and mom and I went out and we picked the best bread, best bedspread I could find. We looked forever for that. But that was my pride and joy, was my bedspread. We come up now to January, 1978. On the 14th of January, the night before, the day before I was attacked, It was a beautiful, sunny, cold day in Tallahassee. In Tallahassee, I remember it was drizzly and cold, and I put on my um, big woolly sweater and my blue corduroy pants, and I was ready to go out and see what the day brought us. Actually, I actually, actually, I also had a wedding that I had to go to at noon that day. So a bunch of us guys got together and we did something before the wedding. We had the wedding. It was very small and just very intimate and just a nice, nice time to be together. And now I had my friends at church as, along with my friends from sorority. So um, it was a big mix for me. After the wedding... We went to the reception at a hotel in Tallahassee, and it was great. We got all the food and all the booze we could drink at the reception. And being college kids, it was great. We didn't have to scrounge for liquor and food, so we enjoyed that. Later that afternoon, I went home to the Cayo house. It was a couple blocks from the church. We were going to all go out and go to a movie that night the kids from the, from the wedding. So I went home, back to the sorority to change. When I walked in, there were all these girls, sorority sisters, talking in the hallway of what they did and, and what they were gonna do. And uh, I decided that I wanted just to stay home that month. So instead of going out, I went up to my bedroom, which was on the second floor of the sorority. We faced the back parking lot, which was the back of the house. My room was the second floor and it was the second room on the left. When you walked into my bedroom, I had green carpet. On each side of the wall of the door were our closets. And then as you look further down the room on the hall, on the wall, there was my dresser and then my desk and then my bed. And my bed faced the back of the room. So the back Wall of the room was completely windows. There were it was a beautiful sunshiny room, and we always kept our curtains open because we hung hung plants on the rods, so the sun room was always sunny and bright. I decided to stay home. I put on my pajamas, crawled into bed, and decided to study. That was about eight thirty that night. Around eleven thirty, my roommate and I decided to go to sleep. She also was studying in her room <clears throat> so we decided to go to sleep it was about it was about eleven thirty on that Saturday night I sleep pretty light and uh, I was sleeping on my side and really early in the morning I wasn't sure what time it was I heard our bedroom door open and it's as it slid across the carpet that was um uh, the green carpet it slid across and that kind of woke me up a little bit because it was an unusual sound it wasn't loud but it was something that kind of made me wake up the next thing I heard was a big thug and noise and something being kicked and what that was a small foot locker that Karen and I had between our twin beds so there were maybe three feet on each side of the foot locker until our our twin beds so there wasn't a lot of room and the room was dark at that point being so early in the morning. Whomever came into our room had knocked that over, had kicked that trunk and it made so much noise that now I am waking up and I'm squinting my eyes and I'm trying to focus and what was I looking at and all I could see was a silhouette, a figure of someone standing next to me. And as I was looking and squinting I saw this person raise his arm up over his head and I could tell there was something in his hand but I, I didn't know what it was and it seemed in slow motion that he took his arm and slammed it on my face with that turned out to be a oak club piece of firewood When he hit me It didn't hurt right away, it was like a thud. It was like just, it was just a weird sensation. And I broke my jaw in three places. It slammed my chin so bad it shattered. I almost broke my tongue off. My cheek was open from the corner of my mouth up to my ear and it had bark inside, it was embedded in my cheek and it flipped open so you could see the inside of my mouth. My shoulder was lacerated also with the oak club that he hit me with. At this point, I I kinda went out. I, I became unconscious for a few minutes. And as I was sometime during that time, my roommate started to stir, hearing the noise that was going on. So this person went over to her and attacked her and hit her with the same piece of firewood that he had attacked me. I'm now moaning and groaning and I'm hurting. And the pain is so fierce in my head and my shoulder. And it just, I can't explain the pain. It was horrible. And I'm in a little ball and I'm small as I could make myself and I'm screaming, but no sound is coming out. And I looked and I opened my eyes a little bit and this person was standing next standing next to me again and he raised his arm and I thought for sure I was gonna die. I just I thought for sure this was it. And as he stood there before he hit me again, the room it illuminated with a bright light and it was it was bright in there and I'm opening my eyes now and I see this person who was dressed all in dark clothes kind of spooked he was antsy was looking out the window and looking at me and he finally ran out the door and then the room got dark again and i'm in my little huddle in my bed and it occurred to me that light was the light of a car that was bringing one of the sorority sisters home from a date that night so when that light shone into our room it made this person trip over that trunk again and run out the door. And after the room got dark, I still expected him to come back and attack me again. I was, I was so overwhelmed in pain and being scared that I, I just passed out. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next thing I remember was a police officer, and he was standing next to my head and talking to me. And when I saw him, I felt such a comfort because I knew I was gonna be safe. That guy wasn't gonna come hit me anymore. That the police were gonna take care of me, and I was safe. Although I'm in a world of confusion and hurt, that little piece, that little sliver, made me feel safe inside. Um after a while I'm screaming in the top of my lungs for someone to help me. And all I was doing was making gurgling sounds because of my jaw being broken so severely and my tongue almost sheared off. It's all I could do. My face is all swollen now. And that was that was very hurtful because I wanted to scream and, and yell and I couldn't. Mm-hmm. I remember the EMS, EMS came next, and they were so sweet to me, and they took care of me, and, and they did see the bark that was in my face, and it was cluttered on the floor and on my bed. So that's how they knew it was that piece of oak that he carried in with him. They tended to me and um, stabled me enough, stabilized me enough that they could carry me out of the sorority house on the stretcher. When you walked into the sorority, into the foyer, there was this beautiful wooden staircase that went up to the second floor where I lived. I'm now being carried down those stairs on a stretcher. And I start to get, go outside the big double doors, and it's so cold, and I'm freezing, and I'm hurting, and I'm scared. And a little bit later, a couple feet later, I see the lights and the sirens and the motor and the ambulance and the police cars and all the noise was squeaking from the walkie-talkies. And and in my mind, I was in a carnival. Hmm. My mind took me to somewhere that was safe. And actually, I wanted to go there. It was something, a fond memory of being in, in a carnival and i had that thought for a few minutes until i was taken into the ambulance and once again the police officer never never left me he um he was right by my head the whole time and i was taken into the ambulance and then taken to the hospital at tallahassee memorial hospital
0: and um we are at the 24 minute mark Um, so I think I'm going to stop the recording and we're going to take a quick recess and then I want you to come back and we'll talk more about this.
1: Okay. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks. Okay, um, me and Kathy are back. Um, She's gonna finish telling you about her experience. So go ahead, Kathy.
1: I was attacked by Ted Bundy on the night and the morning of January 15th, 1978. After the traumatic experience I had in the sorority house, I was taken to uh, Tallahassee Memorial Hospital where I was taken to the ER and um into the OR. They wired my mouth shut as best they could. They put, um, they wired it as far as my teeth wired together. And they had the lacerations on my shoulder and some other injuries they tried to take care of. Um, about a week later, I left the hospital and was flown back down to Miami where my parents lived. And that's where I was going to recuperate. That's where I was going to get better and and get through this. Because once again, I decided, you know, this is not going to define me. I'm not going to live like that little girl in, in my house all year. I wasn't going to live being a victim of this attack. I was recuperating in Miami. It was terrible. It was terrible it was I was hurting and my mouth was wired shut and I I couldn't eat only things that went through my straw through my teeth which I the attack actually really separated my teeth really bad so I did have a lot of spaces about three weeks after the attack mama took me to an oral surgeon in Miami he decided that my jaw was not aligned correctly. So they had to re-break my jaw again after three weeks of healing. He put pins in each joint in my, in my uh, jaw. And then you had to wrap my chin with, with wire because it was there wasn't enough bone there to, to heal. So um, now I have two, two pins and wire wrapped around my chin, and I'm, back home recuperating. I was about six weeks total of, of my mouth being wired, and as I sat there and thought and tried to heal, I heard the name Ted Bundy. I didn't know who that was. That was, you know, I was a freshman in in college. I was, you know, I was happy, you know, carefree and, you know, what's Ted Bundy? And as the reports on the television came through that he was actually arrested in Pensacola and taken back to Tallahassee to be um, as a prime suspect for the attacks, I started learning a little bit more about him and it was... Something I needed to know I needed to have the information and I, I wanted it so bad I wanted to know who he was what what kind of person does this. So I found um, I read books, the first one being Anne Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me. And it told a lot about him as a flesh and blood and bones and, you know, a person that he was. So I found that very interesting and it helped heal me too because it wasn't just this black bulb that I was afraid of. It it was a person. I also started feeling that I was afraid afraid of men. Men I didn't know, unfamiliar men, were um, terrifying me. Actually, at that point, my mouth was unwired. And about two weeks later, I went and got a job at a lumberyard in South Miami. My mindset on that was I wanted to see the most men I could see in a given time at somewhere where I'm not comfortable, not in my in my space I'm usually in, and. I wanted to work there and see them and I worked a cup maybe a month and I would, I was a cashier. So I would see everyone. I could see all the guys until finally I said, you know, <laughs> I'm not, I'm over this now. I know, you know, There were a lot of men that came through and um you know i i didn't feel like they were gonna hurt me or attack me and i learned one thing though um there's a lot of cute construction workers out there because it was it was a fun place to work for a while um so mama decided and i decided i didn't need to work and do that anymore i went home and tried to recuperate some more i decided i still had I still had bad feelings inside. I I was afraid of things, just things kind of spooked me. And I didn't like that, and I knew I wanted to get away. I wanted to get away from this feeling. So in my mind, um, I never saw a psychiatrist or a therapist back then. Um, it's just something that wasn't offered, and we didn't...
0: want to start um we actually i'm sorry listeners but we i messed up (laughs) i stopped the recording by accident um she was talking what you were talking about you had left the lumber yard you were back with your mom yes okay
1: okay um after the time at the lumber yard i was feeling good about myself that i uh, overcame something Mm -hmm. i still had this this feeling of dread, um, like this black thing encompassed me. yeah, and I wanted to get away from that. and I had a goal. My goal, I could see in the in way out in the distance, was a little island, and that island had one tall pine uh, palm tree and one little chair that sat in the sand. that's all that was on it. And I wanted to get to that island so bad. And I thought that would be something that would free me or something that if that island could help, I'd find something else I needed to get to to get away from this. And I took baby steps and I took baby steps. And as I did that, I turned around and this big black thing was baby steps behind me. And it took me a while, it took me a long while to do these baby steps in my head. And as I got closer to the island, that thing was closer behind me. It got further and further. By the time I reached my island and sat in a chair and put my toes in the sand, I looked and it was gone. I couldn't see it anymore. And that was to the ending of me being in that state of mind, well, I can't come out of this. i'm I'm gonna live like this. no, i I can do this. And my strength comes from within. I think, um knowing that you have a strength helps you, and everybody has a strength inside you. And if you look really hard and deep inside you and you pull it up, and that strength is yours now. No one can take it away from you. And I used that strength to wrap me like a blanket. And when I needed to do something, that strength helped me get through that. It it took a while and I used it for different things, but mentally and physically, I could see it and feel it and do better because of it. So that is one thing Um, I enjoyed having the strength. Now I could do this. So um, that's one thing that helped me. But after I recuperated and after uh, that big blob went away, I was married six months after the attack in June of 77, I'm sorry, June of 78. And I didn't know him very well. I knew him for about a year in high-stemming in college. And my mom and his parents thought that, oh, they should get married, you know, she needs someone to take care of her and that marriage didn't last it only lasted a couple years but it wasn't something I needed at that point. I was letting people make decisions for me and that I needed to make my own decisions. And I don't think anyone I had married at that point would have made it through a marriage just because of mentally where I was and how I needed to be on my own as far as getting better and healing. Mm-hmm. This was um, this was a rough time. Something else that I have in my heart is that I want to get better not just for me but for others around me for my loved ones they put as much effort into trying to help me as i was putting effort in trying to heal and they were there doing anything and everything they could i i felt i felt bad that i was you know, their, their hassle or, you know, and they said, no, no, you're, you know, we'd love to do things. And then I found out that if they asked to do something like turn on the light and I say, no, I'll get it. And no, you do it for me. And they turned it on like, wow, we did something. Mm-hmm. So when someone is trying to help, help you, if you give them a <laughs> little task or something they want to do, even though you could do it yourself, it, it really helps that person. And it made me feel good. So, um part of, of my recuperating and, and healing and, and doing things is I want other people to feel good around me. I don't want to bring them down. Mm-hmm. So I was um, looking to do and see who I was now. At this point, what was my life going to be like? A couple years after that, I had a baby and my son is now 38. His name is Michael, but when i was diagnosed with lupus there were things that they told me i should not do or should not have um emotions traumatic emotions which i got attacked after i was diagnosed with lupus and also that i shouldn't have children Mm. because that um the hormones and everything in that situation um activates lupus again and it can come back so much more severe um at the second time that it did the first couple years after during my marriage, I did get pregnant and had my little baby boy. I remember my mama said, No, you're going to have a baby. Oh my gosh, you're going to kill yourself. She had spent so much time and energy getting me healthy from lupus wow. that she thought, Okay, now. <laughs> so, but I had a beautiful baby boy and he was two when I got divorced, which I was a single mom. about five years Mm -hmm. that was a time where i needed to grow and he needed to grow obviously and it was a good time for both of us it wasn't easy all the time Mm -hmm. but together we got through it i didn't have to do it alone i wanted to do it with him let me ask you a question
0: after after like in between time when did when did you actually have to go and see ted bundy face to face in the courtroom
1: I had to go see Bundy one year after the attack. Mm -hmm. He was, the attack was January of 78. He was in the courtroom in June of 79. Mm -hmm. But before I had to go to trial, my deposition and my um, grand jury um, was in Tallahassee. So Mm -hmm. I was blown to Tallahassee. And during my deposition, it was like a huge conference room with a big conference table. When I walked in, there was attorneys for the prosecution and and also for the defense. And at the end of the table was Ted Bundy. Mm. And I was standing up at the other end of the table. And I looked at him, and I sat down. And I looked at him, and he was just really smug-looking. He just... Mm -hmm. You know, he had his his face in his in his hand, his chin, and he was just looking at me smugly. And I looked at him, and I wasn't really afraid. Mm-hmm. I was just like, like, "Darn you! Yeah, <laughs> Why yeah. did you do this?" You know. Yeah. And it wasn't a fear; it was like facing him finally after all the thoughts I had in my head mm-hmm. all this time. And you know, a year later, it was like I'm getting to see and. You know, it's not that he's he's not got the power over me. Right. And I did not take my eyes off of him the whole time. Did you
0: have anger like did you have anger built up?
1: I had anger and it wasn't so much for me because I was okay, I was getting through it. But my anger excuse me, for was for the other women that he killed. All the young women that he took and killed and mutilated and mm-hmm. And all their families that lost their beautiful children—he took them away from the world, from all of us, so soon that just—I was angry for that. I was just really in a bad place thinking about that. And again, it wasn't for me because I knew I was going to be okay. It was for them. It's the voices that couldn't be seen and heard at that point and couldn't say what they wanted to to him. I—I don't remember what the questions were. That I was asked by you know, the both sides, yeah. and then it was my turn to leave, and I just got up and walked
0: out. For anyone living under right, but for anyone living under a rock, I don't think we even like talked about who Ted Bundy really was before he started the pod. But Ted Bundy was a serial killer. So when she says, you know, he killed these women and mutilated them, he did. And I don't remember how many victims he had, um, but it was quite a many yeah, it's up to
1: thirty right he confessed to
0: right and um that one was it just one that was a child?
1: No, he actually I think there were one or two out in <clears throat> um, on the west coast, mm-hmm. and I think one was as um like in her like she was fourteen. Mm-hmm. all of them were in their teens,
0: right. all of them were yeah. young girls, right they
1: were college students, mm-hmm. and you know. Back then, in the early 70s, it was kind of a freer society as far as, you know, how people acted and treated. So, he was not ever thought of scary scary or anything. He had a a baby boy face. He Mm -hmm. was really, you know, a cute looking guy at that point. And um, he would wear a cast or say he needed help to do something and the women would go help him and then he would um, abduct him and put him in his car Mm -hmm. and take him and kill him.
0: Yeah, um, I just want I'm sorry, I kind of backed you up because I felt like maybe the listeners would want to know how you felt in that moment, you know, and you know what I mean? Like kind of like a few little details. But if you want to, we can since you just, you know, touched on the subject, we can kind of go back to the moment where you were talking about your your son and go from there. And uh, because I know you're a breast cancer survivor, too.
1: Yes, yes I am. Mm-hmm. Um, right after the, the deposition, the trial was in June of 79. Mm-hmm. I lived in Miami with my parents, so um, we went to uh, the courthouse the day of my testimony. Mm-hmm. We didn't go during during any of the trial, just my day. And I remember I woke up in the morning and I thought, oh God, this is gonna be a bad day. Mm. But um, I looked in my closet and I found the brightest red dress with a white collar that I could find and my pantyhose and my black shoes and I was ready for court. And I didn't wanna feel, you know, cowarding and putting my head down. I wanted to stand up and show my red dress and have that feeling of confidence that I really wanted to have. We went to the courtroom and it was really with the cameras and, and the TV feeds, uh, reporters. It was the first trial that actually was um, done in court where the TV crew and everything could be in. So um, at that point, I got to see him again. It was my turn to testify. I went in and sat at the testimony and the witness box. And I looked around the room. I could see the jurors on one side. And then I looked and I saw the prosecuting attorneys. I looked a little more and the defense table and right there was Bundy. Mm. He was sitting across from me again in the courtroom and I don't remember seeing anything else because when I saw him I locked my eyes just locked on his and this time he didn't look so smirky he didn't have that you know confident little look Mm -hmm. he was a little bit more subdued his um his demeanor was quieter just i could tell that in his face in his eyes and he always had dark eyes um i don't know if i mentioned that they weren't like black eyes they were just like really dark mm. and i could not have told what color they were they just unhappy eyes or they just that's the way i saw them and this time i had more confidence this time i was on the right side of good i was i was in a place where I was. I was going to help put him away. And that's what it was important to me. Mm-hmm. And after the case, uh, he was found guilty and sentenced to death. Yeah. And that would not take place actually until 1989. So no. it was about 10 years that he was on death row going through stays of execution.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But after that, um, it was a couple years later that I was, um, now I'm afraid of hospitals. That was another thing. Mm. Because of so many experiences in the um, in lupus and going to the hospital, I was afraid of hospitals. After a while, I ended up going and getting a job at a hospital because I couldn't even walk through the front door. And um, so I worked there for 18 years and it was the best job I ever had. And, you know, I was proudly walking through the front door after about a week because it's something that I I controlled it was my destiny to go through that door so um, so that's what I did after a couple years I was married then now to my husband Scott and we were going to have a baby so I went to have a GYN doctor appointment and they found a lump in my breast and I hadn't felt it And, you know, he goes, well, don't you do self-exams? I'm like, well, no. You know, I just never thought about it. You hear people say, do it, do it. And if you don't do it, you don't find things. So they found the lump, and it was the size of a pea. So by the time we ended up doing the surgery, it had grown to the size of a walnut. And I was going to have a radical mastectomy. And if needed, they would take the other... Um, the other breast, but at that point we didn't do it just, you know, just because it might come back. So I had a radical mastectomy, and that means they took the lymph nodes out of my arm and um, totally, totally um, <clears throat> took out my breast. So it was just the flat um, material. It was just a flat, flat side, and I did do tissue expanders, mm-hmm. which um, is when they put a. Um, a a bloom basically under your breast and they pump it up so that when you're ready to have final surgery for your reconstruction, that it's a size where you can go ahead and put the implant in. When I was diagnosed with the cancer, they said I had to have chemo as one of the ways to treat me and in my head it exploded and I said anything but chemo no chemo because it took me right back to that little kid in seventh grade that had no hair and just was horrible it was a horrible memory but I had to have nine months of chemo and I remember taking the first chemo and coming out and saying wow I have another chemo I have one more chemo and my husband's like no you have eight more I'm like no I have one more and after that I have one more because if I knew I had to take seven or eight or nine more chemos I couldn't do it but I can do one more and that's how I got through that stage of my life where I um I had to go through chemo again and I just put it in my head this is the way I'm doing it. I can't control not doing it but I control how I do it and doing one at a time really worked for me I kind of made my little baby steps uh, work for me again so after the um, after my chemo years so later I got pregnant and Scott and I wanted to have another child and uh, about excuse me, about three weeks into the pregnancy, I had a miscarriage. And this broke me up so bad because everything I've been through, I could do it. I could fix myself. I, I could, I could be okay mentally and I couldn't help this baby. I couldn't do anything to help it. And that was, it was hard on me. And I know there's so many women out there who go through, mastectomies and then they go through miscarriages and then they goes everyone goes through things and I just took it very personally that I couldn't help the baby and it was very traumatic for me about six months later I got pregnant again and this was a joyous time until the second trimester and I miscarried again and now now I'm thinking you know I can't do this anymore. I can't. I can't feel like this and feel guilty that I I did something and I couldn't save the baby. So, we decided not to have any kids, and we went out and bought a sailboat, and that became my new baby. Because Scott and I and Mike, which is now about 10 or 12, we would go sailing every weekend. And it became a fun experience for us. And we never thought about the miscarriages. You never forget. But it wasn't at the forefront of my mind anymore. It was, you know, that was that. and This is now. And I'm going to enjoy every minute of life now.
0: Right. You know, I take away from what you say. um, We've been, we've been knowing each other now for what, about, I'd say about four months. (laughs) Yes. Um, I take, and we have spoke over the phone um, pretty intimately about all these things really before we ever recorded, but I take what you say and it just, the survivor in me feels a connection with the survivor in you. No matter what we survive, whether it be domestic violence, sexual assault, um, you know, or just a violent crime, like what you survived. And then the lupus, you know, being sick, I too suffer with lupus. So, um, you know, we do, I feel like we sort of have that connection and, you know, I, I've never had a miscarriage, but I, I've only been able to have one child, um, you know, because I have a female disorder. So, you know, it's like this, you're a true super survivor. You're a thriver you know you you find the strength in the depths of who you are you pick up and you move on and essentially that's what it's about it's about survival um this podcast speaks to a lot of survivors and to a lot of victims um, of violent crimes of domestic violence and so on and i want you to um leave them with a message um, before we hang up the podcast and um, tell them what you got going on also at the end. Um, But we've got a few more minutes that we can talk um, before we have to hang up. So um, yeah, just leave them with a few words.
1: Okay. Um, One thing that I did, I did know and I felt in my heart was Bundy took me on his journey. He took me into the, the depth of hurt and hell, and and he was taking me somewhere on his journey. And I decided, no, I was not. I did not want my life to be determined and defined as a victim of Ted Bundy. I took his journey, and I made it my own. And I I just totally put him away from that. And I I went on my own journey in life and faced what I had to face and enjoyed all the wonderful times. But. I just one thing that I found helped me um, is to put it behind you as best as you can and as healthy as you can, but know whatever journey someone puts you to go through, that just turn it into your journey and make that through life as something you want to do. Um, and hopefully hopefully you can you can go forward as I have and just with a a very um, good outlet outlook on life because things get better I used to say you got to keep running because God's going to put a hurdle in front of you and now I always say you have to walk really fast and open the door because it's going to be a hurdle in front of you but look behind it because it's always going to be something good so um, that's the way I look like now I just want to see what's ahead of me and and enjoy whatever it is
0: and you are working and and you are working on
1: Yes, I just started the last month or so writing a book, and I've had so many um, people say that I should write write about myself and, and you know, tell tell what I've been through, and I've always felt like this is just my little life, and, you know, I'm very thankful and, and pleased that people want to hear about it, so um, basically, I've been talked into writing a book, although for all these years, I've written, like, little things that I don't want to... Forget and things I want to remember. So uh, I'm very excited. I hear it takes a couple years or a year or two to write a book. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm still on the stage of uh, getting everything together that I want to talk about and write about that people have found interesting. Yeah. So I appreciate all that. And also, I'm on Twitter. If anyone wants to contact yeah. me,
0: yeah.
1: Um, they can find me there, and um, you know, I can respond back and. And if you have any special questions or anything you need more information about, I'd be happy to talk with
0: you. Yeah, yeah. She's um she's on Facebook too. Um do not yes. stalk her though if you hit her I'm I'm up skin, but for real. Um yes. she is a very open and honest human being, um and a very lovely one, I shall say. And um Kathy, I'm so happy you come on the podcast. I'm sorry I messed us up, but hopefully it'll work out. <laughs>
1: Well, let me know if it doesn't and I will be more than happy to talk to you again. Or if there's anything that you get feedback on, like I said, that if people want to know more Mm -hmm. about my story, if they, you know, ask you to talk to me again, I'd be more than happy.
0: Yes, ma'am. Well, I really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all of the. The storytelling, I mean, it was just very riveting, and I told her when we took our break while ago, I felt like I was in the room with her and Bundy, and I wanted to hurt him, and I wanted to save her <laughs> life, and I wanted to save her from the pain. So, um, <clears throat> I'm sure that all of you got the same feeling, I know you did, um, but um, truly, I appreciate you so much, and thank I want to say thank you to all the listeners out there, and um, just love yourself, and you know take care of yourself and if you are in a domestic violence situation or a violent situation please seek help um a safety plan is the best way out um i always preach that um but guys thank you for all the love and support with the podcast and what i do on social media and look kathy up she is on twitter she's on social media and um you know, her book's coming soon, so maybe it'll be out in another year, <laughs> so, um, anyway, um, love you guys, and I will see you on the next podcast, bye. Hey, guys, um, I just wanted to make a quick, a uh, little bit of audio for you. If you would like to support the podcast, um, you can do so with, um with the actual app you can go on to the website and there's a button there it says sponsorship of the app of the uh podcast and there's all different types you know from ninety nine cents a month to maybe ten dollars a month I mean if you want to do that that's fine you don't have to this is a free podcast y'all all know that if you would like to donate to the podcast it would really be appreciative. Um your donations go toward keeping the podcast moving. So if you want to hear more episodes like the one that you just heard, donate now to um, the Money Signs Survivor Podcast 43. That's a cash out that was set up just for the podcast in mind. Um, Every little bit helps. And so just be the first one to donate. And whoever would like a shout out, if you donate to the podcast, I will give you a shout out a shout out in the next podcast. Uh, may just do a, an entire podcast dedicated to the people who do um, want to donate and sponsor the podcast. So um appreciate it. And my email is hmisty387 at gmail.com. If you d- happen to donate or anything like that, you it pops up and it'll pop up in my email so I'll know your name. But if you want to personally email me, you can do that too. So thank you guys for the love and support, and I look forward to talking to you on the next podcast. Bye, guys.